I'm Michael Shoulder. On this episode of the Wavemaker Conversations series on sexual harassment, my guest made her reputation studying aggression against women. Her findings help make society aware of what has come to be known as date rape. Professor Mary Koss entered the field in the 1970s when she was asked to salvage a fellow professor's unusual study proposal. It was a proposal to have women that he employed sit and wear different sizes of padded bras while they interacted with male college students. Afterwards, the students would then rate the women on how rapeable they were. That proposal got more outrageous, as you'll hear in a few minutes. At this juncture, when our society is trying to figure out the best routes to justice for the wide spectrum of cases making daily news, Mary Koss has developed great faith in a process that she believes benefits victims in ways criminal court cases usually do not. The process is called restorative justice. Here's what the prosecutor said to me. She said, I have never seen a rape victim laugh. That really stayed with me. It was clearly something that was a letting go of a burden, that it was a lifting of the cloud. After hearing the voices of many thousands of women over four decades, very little surprises Mary Koss. Here is something that has. What surprised me is the number of absolutely devastated moms and dads who call me because they take it as the dads. They didn't do their job. They were unable to protect their daughter. Moms, they feel all the hurt that they know their daughter is feeling below the surface. I hope you'll keep listening through the end of our conversation when Mary Koss opens up about her own experience as a victim of sexual harassment and the price she paid in her workplace after filing a formal complaint. I experienced an entire year when no one spoke to me, so I would have to walk up and down the hall carrying on a monologue with passing people. Hi, how are you? Hope you're well. I'm fine. Yeah, my children are growing up. There was no responses. On this Wavemaker Conversation, I continue my series on sexual harassment, featuring perspective-changing voices and insights that get overlooked in the day-to-day coverage of breaking news. Professor Mary Koss, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Of all days for me to have you on this show, on this day, very unusual. Not a single story of a famous or powerful man accused of sexual harassment or groping or predatory behavior. Not one today. So far. So far. (laughs) That's right. I'm turning to you because you've been in this field for a long time. And in fact, the National Journal wrote a piece on you a couple of years ago, and I love the title of it. And I just want to ask what you think about that title. They called it The Lonely Quest of Mary Koss. What is your quest? My quest has been to understand why women are hurt and how we can stop it. When did you begin this quest? How did it begin? Was it serendipity? Was it, you know, you knew this is what you wanted to do from the time you entered college? Well, it was really definitely serendipity. I was a brief psychotherapy researcher. 
I changed jobs, and at my new university, literally my first day, I walked in the door, and the door flew open, and a senior professor stormed out, stopped me, pretty much didn't even say welcome, just said, I had a grant rejected. They rejected it only because I'm a man. You put your name on it, and it will get accepted. I took it and went to look at it. As soon as I read very far into it, I realized why it was rejected. It was a proposal to have women that he employed sit and wear different sizes of padded bras while they interacted with male college students. Afterwards, the students would then rate the women on how rapeable they were, how likely they were to have sex, and how culpable they would be if they were raped. So I had to go back to him and say, that idea is not going to fly because we do research to have implications. And even if breast size were related to the likelihood of being raped, what would the implications of that be? What would we do? It has no suggested public policy directions. I said, you know, you've got buried in here the idea that we should survey college students about how much sexual aggression and victimization they've experienced. Why don't we use a survey then to find out if there's people out there who would disclose on a survey but never told anybody about it? And based on my reading of your work, you decided that the language we were using in these studies wasn't necessarily getting at the truth. I'm talking about the 1970s, and there had only been one prior study in 1957. Of course, the sensibilities were different then, and the language was very vague. I had experience from doing my dissertation, which ironically was on how you ask questions that you can get answers that actually map onto people's verified life history. So I thought, well, I can apply these principles to how to write sexual victimization and sexual aggression surveys. So I have to stop you for one second because did I hear you write that until you got involved in this particular study, there had only been one published study done on sexual victimization? Yes. So then what did you go on to ask and then learn? My idea was that terms like rape are legal terms. Therefore, people might not know what the meaning of them are, so that it would be a better idea to be behaviorally specific, to ask people if they've had certain experiences without using the label rape. If I had to say the moment that I realized there is something really going on here, it was when I compared the number of people who were disclosing that they had been vaginally, orally, or anally penetrated against their consent through force, threat of force, or when they were intoxicated, and turned right around and said, but I don't consider myself a rape victim. Or they said, I consider myself the victim of some kind of crime, but not rape. I call this unacknowledged rape, where a woman had had the experiences that constitute rape. She had had penetration. She had some degree of force, and it was against her consent. That fulfills the legal components of rape. As I thought about it more, that's when I realized, oh, what's going on is there are many women 
in fact, the majority of women who've been raped who don't use that term to understand their experience. And why is that? There are a number of explanations. One is that's just not how they realized the term rape could be applied. Many people hold the stereotype that rape involves a stranger who jumps out of a bush at you. Even politicians in recent years have referred to that as legitimate rape, implying that any other kind of rape that you might assert would be illegitimate. And that is far from the case. Eight out of 10 rapes involve people who know each other. And the people you were surveying, was this a university study or outside the university? Well, when you use the word serendipity, I didn't have the idea of specifically using college students, but I had to because I didn't have enough grant money to do anything else. And then, of course, looking back later and realizing that by using college students, we ended up picking the peak age range that's at risk for rape. I'm going to add here that through her studies, by framing her questions in a way designed to get a more accurate response, Professor Koss concluded that approximately one in four college-aged women have experienced rape or attempted rape since the age of 14. And when you came out with this study, roughly when was this? Well, I published the first study that was done at Kent State University in 1982 and published a national study that was funded by the federal government and carried out in collaboration with the Ms. Foundation. That was published in 1987. It's interesting, the Ms. Foundation, because I know Ms. Magazine and many others wrote a story about your findings. And it seems from what I've read that for the first time, they use this term date rape. Yes. That is correct. Were you the one who developed that term, or did they develop it around your statistics? I think it's highly likely that that term was in consciousness-raising dialogue. But I think the work that Ms. and I did together, that's credited with being the first source that introduced, as a formal terminology, date rape. So this was the beginning of your work, and now here we are fast-forwarding 30 years or so. And as you've been following the news in recent weeks and seeing this slew of stories of aggression against women that has gone on for a long, long time, what has your reaction been? My reaction has been I've known about this for a long time, but I'm very happy women are talking about it and finding comfort in numbers and also getting the validation of having some consequences happen. Many, if not most, of the recent disclosures took place in their workplace. That's technically called sexual harassment. And under sexual harassment are two different things. In the public dialogue right now, we're talking about the sexual forms of sexual harassment. We've been talking about groping, having to watch somebody masturbate, being asked to touch them, or all the way up to being coerced or forced into having penetrative sex. There is also a part of the continuum that's gender harassment. And if you include that, there's many more women who come in under the umbrella. Just let's focus on entertainment. In general, 
women complain that they're underrepresented, that they don't have opportunities, that the workplaces are just rife with offensive comments being made about them, about even having to listen to stuff about how women are not suited to certain kinds of work and therefore can't even be considered. That's called gender harassment, and it actually is under the umbrella term of sexual harassment. What people, I think, need to know is that there is sexual harassment that involves sex, and there's sexual harassment that involves gender. In all your years of interviewing people for your studies, if you had to guess, ballpark figure, how many women and men have you interviewed over the years to ask them detailed information about whether they've been the victims of aggression or the perpetrators of aggression? If you would include all the studies, all the people who were surveyed, I can't even estimate how many thousands it would be. And is there any one of these women or men, anyone you can think of among the many who was a perspective changer for you? One answer to that is that immediately after a rape, a lot of rape victims try to pull themselves together and they go into shock and they just try to keep going forward. So what surprised me is the number of absolutely devastated moms and dads who call me because they take it as the dads. They didn't do their job. They didn't do what a man is supposed to do. They were unable to protect their daughter. Moms, sometimes it triggers a memory of something that happened to them, but just in general, they feel all the hurt that they know their daughter is feeling below the surface. As a parent myself, I find that extremely difficult to deal with, and I really am glad that I'm around so that I can have those conversations with people. So let me ask you in terms of how to achieve justice, because a lot of the stories we're hearing now in the news are not stories about rape, but certainly about sexual aggression and sexual harassment. What is the appropriate punishment, and how do you assess what the appropriate punishment is? These incidents that we're hearing about all occurred in an employment context. That places the institution or the company that the alleged perpetrator works for, that puts them on notice, and they have a legal responsibility to provide a safe and equal opportunity workplace for women. So it's not uncommon for institutions to put people on leave when incidents like this are reported. I think what's different about what's happening now and what actually may be misleading a lot of people out there is these men have been losing their jobs. I think that's because they do jobs where public perception is very important. In reality, though, if you're just a cog in a wheel at a university or a janitorial service, I'm specifically covering a range of different employment settings, if you're in those situations, it will take a long time to have anything happen. And most likely, it won't be anything 
as clear-cut and as satisfying to the victim as what we're seeing now. For example, I know of an instance where an investigation is going on and the person was just assigned to a different workplace, keeps on getting paid and keeps on doing their work. That's really different from we're seeing people getting fired immediately on the same day. Now, partially that's because institutions normally make sure they give due process and follow policies to ensure that both the victim and the alleged perpetrator get a chance to tell their story in an adversarial type of context. Sexual harassment, in other words, things that happen in the workplace, allow for non-judicial hearing type approaches to resolving sexual harassment. That could be sitting down face to face, but oftentimes it means going back and forth between two people and coming to some agreement on what is going to happen as a result. Mediation takes place on an equal playing field. It doesn't assume that there's a person who's done wrong. Mediation also results in agreements that, because they're negotiations, they don't satisfy either side. They're a compromise. So this would actually be having the alleged victim and the alleged perpetrator sit down across the table from each other. That's allowed in sexual harassment. Restorative justice is something I feel really strongly about, that it's a good idea, that it's our best road to coming out with something that is perceived as a fair process by both victims and by the people responsible for the wrong and harmful acts. But restorative justice isn't widely implemented for sexual assault. There's many, many demonstrations of it around the country for other things. Define restorative justice for me, just so I completely understand it. Well, first of all, restorative justice is forward-looking. When people voluntarily are offered and choose the option of restorative justice, they agree that the person who has done wrong accepts responsibility for what has been done. And they agree that they will, after some weeks or months of preparation, sit down and there will be an opportunity for the victim to describe how she has been harmed and there will be an opportunity for the responsible person to say specifically what they did and to take responsibility for what they did without placing blame on the victim. Restorative justice differs from criminal justice also in seeing an expanded view of who's a victim because there's the direct victim, but let's say it's a college student Their parents are secondary victims. Their friends are secondary victims. Then you can look at the community level. If they belong to a social group such as a sorority or fraternity, the university as a whole, athletic teams, these are groups that also suffer when one of their students or members creates a hurtful situation like this. So I would say that If I had to define restorative justice, it hinges on harm has been done, it needs to be repaired, the person responsible has an obligation to repair that harm, and victims need to drive the process so that their voice is heard 
and their input into the consequences shapes the outcome. And is there evidence that that is actually better in terms of the victim healing and recovering from this than a straightforward punitive effort? There's evidence in Australia where they've directly compared court outcomes to restorative justice outcomes in juvenile sex offenses. The most interesting finding from those studies to me is just that victims are much more likely in a restorative process to be validated, to have the responsible person say, yes, I did it. No, it was not your fault. You did nothing to justify me acting in that way. I caused harm, and I am solely responsible for that harm. I went and talked to the county attorney in my area, and she had other restorative justice programs and was very enthusiastic that we try it. I'll just tell you one story. We had a conference where the city prosecutor attended with me. We did permit observers since justice needs to be a public process. So she was sitting with me, observed the meeting taking place, and then afterwards we escort the responsible person out of the room. And oftentimes the victim and her family and friends stay in the room. And in fact, there were some nights where I thought, we're never going to get home because they're just so relieved, feel so supported that everyone believes what happened to them and is there to reinforce their recovery. So this is in contrast to a more typical case where you've got the perpetrator denying it, where you've got maybe defense attorneys trying to assassinate the character of the alleged victim. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Here's what the prosecutor said to me. She said, I have never seen a rape victim laugh. That really stayed with me, that as we watched after the meeting, the victims and their families decompressing, debriefing, there was a lot of laughter. This line, which I will remember for a long time, I've never seen a rape victim laugh, you know, clearly not laughing about the rape, but a burden had clearly been lifted by hearing the acknowledgement of her rapist that, yes, indeed, this was a wrong that was done to her. Is that correct? Right, right. It was clearly something that was a letting go of a burden, that it was a lifting of the cloud. Coming back to the title of that magazine article, which I'm obsessed with a little bit, The Lonely Quest of Mary Koss. So what is your quest again, and is it lonely? You know, I don't like conflict, and I like to be liked. I didn't go in and choose a field knowingly where I would put out numbers and say one in four women have been raped, go through a cycle where this got a lot of media coverage, very positive, and then starting in 1991, got flamed. There's many terrible things said about me. So when I got into restorative justice, I thought, well, this will be safe. And I just walked right into another blast furnace. 
So yeah, it's been lonely. I published my first paper on campus sexual assault in 1980, and this is 2017. I wrote my first paper on restorative justice in 2000, and we still aren't at a point where we're implementing restorative justice for sexual assault on college campuses. I run into a lot of opposition. There's people mad at me. Here's my favorite line. Somebody stood up at a conference I gave, and she said, I have such respect for you, and I am so sorry that you have chosen to prostitute your intelligence in this way. That's sort of an example, and I guess most people would probably feel lonely in a situation where they didn't have a lot of professional support for their ideas, plus they were being confronted with intellectual prostitution. That laugh shows me that despite the fact that it's been a lonely journey, you haven't lost your sense of humor. No, and I do have a great family and group of friends and professional colleagues, and that's what it takes. You just have to believe in what you're doing, have enough feedback from peers that you know what you're doing is not crazy, and then keep at it. And just to clarify, the essence of the criticism that you've received boils down to what? The Violence Against Women Act focused on the criminal justice system, and it set up a process where the community collaboration has at the hub of the wheel criminal justice process. And all the advocacy groups, the social agencies, the service providers, medical, mental health systems, etc., they all exist as spokes on the wheel. And much of the funding from the Violence Against Women Act has gone to strengthen the efforts of these community agencies to facilitate the work of criminal justice. And by that, I mean adversarial criminal justice. That justice hasn't been very satisfying for victims of sexual assault in particular. It's called the leaky pipeline. It's how many people are raped, let's say a thousand. How many report to the police? At the most generous, 30%. How many do the police investigate? You lose a huge number at that point. How many are actually turned over to prosecutors for consideration? How many get out of the three-foot stack? How many go to court? How often is there a guilty plea agreement or a guilty verdict? The rate of conviction in rape trials internationally is 15%, and in the United States, it's 13%. Now realize that includes the stranger rapes, too. So essentially, there are very few trials and an infinitesimal number of convictions in court for rapes where the victim and the offender knew each other. So basically, there are a lot of people out there saying, oh, you're exaggerating the problem. You know, look at the criminal justice numbers. And you're saying, look, I'm getting these people before they've gone through the criminal or people who have never gone through the criminal justice system. And I can tell you the numbers are much higher than what what is officially reported. Well, yeah, what people say on surveys are for every 1,000 people on a survey who say that they've had an experience that has the legal components of rape. 1% of that number ends up being incarcerated. You can see that what's going on right now is giving 
a overly optimistic picture of how likely you are to get a definitive consequence from a report of rape. I don't want to take an estimate, but virtually every woman has some story about something that happened to her over the course of her working years. Is there anything that happened to you during the course of your working years? Well, it's a matter of public record that I filed a federal lawsuit and an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission complaint about a university that I worked at. So, yes, I have had personal experiences. It was quite a number of years ago, and the only way I found to deal with it was to keep going with the work more and more, channel it into the work. And the basis of your complaint was? Oh, it was about as pathetic as what we're seeing today. It was, you won't make career progress unless you drink with us and socialize with us and just in general hang out. And it also had to do with creating a very negative climate for women students involving things like sexual relations that were quote-unquote consensual with students, admitting people to grad school who did not have qualifications but were the girlfriends of faculty members, showing pornography at the work site, having lunchtime meetings that involved showing pornographic films, keeping pornographic materials and sexual toys and equipment in their offices, That was, generally speaking, the kind of stuff that I was objecting to. (laughs) And did you win your case? No, I didn't. That's in spite of having photographs of some of the things that I was asserting. And the reason I didn't, at that time, you had to show that you had suffered irreparable emotional harm from the experience. And I had received my promotion although the president wrote me that I received it with a black cloud over my head. And also, I didn't fall apart. I mean, I can tell you I spent many, many hours crying at home, but I did not fall apart in the workplace. I experienced an entire year when no one spoke to me, so I would have to walk up and down the hall carrying on a monologue with passing people. Hi, how are you? Hope you're well. I'm fine. Yeah, my children are growing up. There was no responses. And what, what really killed me was a few years ago, one of these people called me and said, hey, I'm going to retire to Tucson, and I'd like you to make some connections for me so I can keep my private business going. And I thought, oh, my, this man does not even have awareness that I might feel like wrong was done to me, and I never received an acknowledgement of that wrong. When did this happen? After I had tenure, because I was afraid to have children. Before I had tenure, I was the first woman at my university who'd ever carried a pregnancy and had a child and continued to work. So it happened after I had my second baby and was heavily into trying to balance everything. And it was right at the time that I was being considered for promotion to full professor. Was it directed at you or you and a number of other women? It was directed specifically at me and one other woman. There were other women present, but 
you know, this always happens. Some people's identity with the institution in this moment becomes more important to them than their identity as women. So they will defend the institution or defend the people accused. And that's what happened. It splits the women, and then it becomes much harder to get administrative attention to problems because you're cast as an outlier. So you were married at the time and still are? Oh, yeah. I'm still married to the same guy. And at the time, I assume you probably talked it over with your husband, and he was supportive in terms of, did you both recognize this is going to be a really tough journey, but you felt you had to do it? We were warned it was going to be a tough journey. He has been, through every day of my career, an equal partner. He's just always looked at my job as as important as his, and that's made a huge difference. Is it two children you have? I have two kids, yeah. I guess they lived through this to some degree, this core challenge and what you were going through at the time. I guess it's fantastic modeling for kids to see their mother fight like that. Well, yes, in some ways I think it is, but they were small at the time. And I just remember that when I would get on the phone with one of these conversations, with an attorney say, my children would start crying. Then you know you're trying to go back and forth between the phone and your kids. And I'd ask them what's wrong. And they would say, use your mommy voice. That's a scary voice. And that was insightful to me that when I would get into the mode of having to defend myself, my voice became different from how I talk when I'm with people I love and feel comfortable with. After listening to the support you got from your husband and what transpired, I think they need to retitle that story, The Not-So-Lonely Journey of Mary Koss. Yeah. (laughs) It's always important to remember that there's lots more good people in the world than bad. Well, that's the definition of an optimist and I hope a realist. Professor Koss, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this on Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciated the opportunity. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. On the next episode in two weeks, I'm going to continue this series on pioneers in the field of sexual harassment. They will share original insights and stories that breaking news coverage overlooks. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.